Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 5th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A coalition of 21 states successfully sued to block the Obama administration's overtime rule, which is set to go into effect on December 1. The coalition was granted a preliminary injunction, so now the rule will not be implemented as litigation continues. That is, unless the Department of Labor engages in an unusually aggressive effort to expedite the response to the ruling. The litigation is likely to outlast the Obama administration. And under a Trump administration, one can assume that the Department of Labor officials will drop litigation or roll back the rule. The rule would have forced both public and private sector employers to pay time and a half overtime to any hourly employees earning less than $47,476 per year, nearly double the old threshold of $23,660. Employees earning less than the threshold but performing executive, administrative, or professional duties were previously exempt from the overtime requirements. But the new rule would have required that they receive time-and-a-half pay for extra work also. The proposed rule directly overrides the exemptions outlined by Congress in the Fair Labor Standards Act. In addition to modifying the threshold and eliminating the white-collar exemption, the Obama administration created an algorithmic method to automatically update the salary threshold every three years. The lawsuit claimed that the overtime rule overrode congressional authority by omitting white-collar exemptions, and secondly, that it violated the Tenth Amendment by forcing states to pay employees a specific salary indirectly controlling state budgets. And thirdly, it violated the Administrative Procedures Act by ratcheting up the salary threshold every three years. The federal judge ruled that the Obama administration had exceeded its authority by raising the overtime salary limit so significantly. The ruling was hailed by business groups who argued the new rules would be costly and result in fewer hours for workers. The Labor Department said it strongly disagreed with the decision and was considering all legal options, raising the possibility of an appeal. While the injunction is only a temporary measure that suspends the regulation until the judge can issue a ruling on the merits, many said the judge's language indicated he was likely to strike down the regulation. And now our crime report. Dr. John Warbritton has been an orthopedic surgeon in Oakland since 1986. He is a graduate of Harvard Medical School and a diplomat of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, and he became a qualified medical examiner in 1992, its inaugural year. He maintained an active practice treating injured workers and had authored hundreds of medical legal evaluations each year. He was chairman of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Alta Bates Summit Medical Center in Oakland from 2003 to 2009. In 2007, Dr. Warbritton started Warbritton & Associates Impairment Rating Specialists, which provides medical legal evaluations from specialists in a growing number of fields. His medical practice, however, has now at least temporarily come to a halt. 
Dr. Warburton appeared for an arraignment on a federal criminal indictment pending in the United States District Court, Northern District of California, on October 18. As a criminal defendant in that case, he agreed not to engage in the practice of medicine, which includes seeing patients and reviewing medical records. Thus, the court entered the order that he is prohibited from practicing medicine in any manner during the pendency of the criminal proceeding. And on November 21st, Kamala Harris, acting in her capacity as California Attorney General, filed an accusation against Dr. Warburton seeking to revoke or suspend his license to practice medicine. According to her accusation, Warburton is subject to disciplinary action for unprofessional conduct because he allegedly engaged in sexual misconduct while evaluating two patients who were referred for medical examinations by industrial insurance companies. The alleged conduct includes in detail oral comments he allegedly made as well as physical gestures that were inappropriate if not illegal. However, the allegations of the federal criminal indictment add another more sinister layer to allegations Warburton will be defending. Federal authorities allege that the doctor also was involved in child pornography. The California Department of Insurance announced that the enforcement action taken against Zenefits for multiple insurance broker license violations, has resulted in a $7 million penalty. Zenefits was charged with allowing unlicensed employees to transact insurance and circumventing insurance agent educational requirements. This is the largest penalty assessed by any commissioner against Zenefits and one of the largest penalties for licensing violations ever assessed in the department's history. Zenefits is a San Francisco-based 2013 startup company that provides online HR services to businesses and then encourages them to use Zenefits as an insurance broker. The Department of Insurance launched an investigation in 2015 after receiving complaints that Zenefits employees were transacting insurance without a license. Shortly after the investigation began, the company went ahead and agreed that they were not complying with insurance laws and regulations. The announcement was quickly followed by the resignation of Zenefit's CEO, Parker Conrad. According to, the Zenef to Zenefit's, its employees sold more than 8,000 insurance policies to California consumers during the time in question. Of this total, about 2,000 insurance policies were sold by employees who lacked the proper license. The settlement agreement includes $3 million penalty for licensing violations, a $4 million penalty for subverting the pre-licensing education and study hour requirements for agent and broker licensing, and a $160,000 payment to reimburse the Department of Insurance for investigation and examination expenses. Zenefits has been investigated and fined in other states for similar compliance issues, including Texas, Massachusetts, Tennessee, and Washington. In July, Zenefits reached a settlement with the Tennessee Department of Insurance and Commerce, agreeing to pay a fine of $62,500. And the Texas insurance regulators have fined Zenefits $550,000 for its past use of unlicensed health insurance brokers.
A former Aflac sales representative has been found guilty of fraud charges stemming from a scheme that built an insurance company out of $4 million with fake disability claims. 60-year-old Patricia Diane Smith Sledge, who lives in Redlands, was convicted for a scheme involving fictitious employers and employees who falsely claimed to have suffered injuries that prevented them from working. At the conclusion of a two-week trial, the federal jury convicted Sledge of six counts of mail fraud. The jury also found that Sledge committed two counts of witness tampering while out on bond in this case. Sledge is ordered to return to court for a sentencing hearing next March, at which time she will face a statutory maximum sentence of 160 years in federal prison. The evidence showed that Sledge, who was residing in Irvine at the time while working for the Aflac company, sold disability insurance policies to bogus companies and people who supposedly worked for those companies. Sledge then orchestrated the filing of fraudulent disability claims and directed the purported employees to doctors that would sign off on the fake injury claims. As a result, Aflac suffered losses of about $4 million. Sledge made money both from the commissions related to the sale of policies and from kickbacks she received from the supposedly injured employees. Sledge was also found guilty of witness tampering for encouraging potential witnesses to lie to federal investigators and discouraging them from cooperating in the investigation. Two others have been prosecuted for acting as fake employers and fake employees in the same scheme. Historically, the federal government has fought corporate health care fraud in two ways. First, the U.S. Department of Justice routinely intervenes in civil False Claims Act cases filed by key Tom relators. Secondly, the federal government typically has relied on individual U.S. attorney offices to initiate and prosecute criminal health care fraud cases. Although the Department of Justice relied on tools such as the Medicare Fraud Strike Force, the focus of these efforts lay largely in individual prosecutors of Medicare fraud and abuse rather than corporate prosecutions. But this approach changed late last year when the Department of Justice formed a separate corporate health care fraud unit within the Criminal Division's fraud section. It is staffed by experienced health care fraud prosecutors. The unit brings increased resources and a new nationwide focus on the investigation and prosecution of health care fraud against corporations. The unit's prosecutors review all False Claim Act cases filed across the country and evaluate whether to initiate a criminal investigation and prosecution. Indeed, earlier this year, Assistant Attorney General indicated that, as a result of the unit's efforts, there were over a dozen active corporate investigations. The Department of Justice was steering additional prosecutorial resources to this area to support fighting health care fraud through parallel civil and criminal investigations. The Department's efforts are already bearing fruit. Last month, the Department of Justice announced a settlement with Tenant Healthcare Corporation that signaled a shift in policy for healthcare fraud enforcement. The settlement 
presents one of the first returns on the DOJ's investment of prosecutorial resources to combat health care fraud against corporations on a national level. The tenant settlement demonstrates the impact of the department's expanded resources and nationwide focus on combating corporate health care fraud. In particular, the tenant settlement offers four key takeaways. Number one, the Department of Justice is no longer satisfied to prosecute individuals alone and is now more than ever before actively scrutinizing corporations for both civil and criminal health care fraud. Healthcare companies operating in multiple jurisdictions are especially susceptible to the coordinated focus that comes with the DOJ's involvement in the prosecution of corporate health care fraud. And the DOJ's involvement opens the door to prosecutions in jurisdictions that do not have health care fraud expertise. And finally, corporations and individual executives alike should beware. <clears throat> well before the tenant resolved the corporate allegations, the Department of Justice secured pleas from two executives, Tracy Coda and Gary Lang, for their involvement in the kickback scheme. Coda and Lang each pled guilty to conspiracy to violate the Anti-Kickback Act by paying and receiving bribes in exchange for Medicaid patient referrals. And in regulatory news, several new bills will become law on January 1 that will influence the management of workers' compensation medical claims. The most important is SB 1160, which precludes the payment of medical bills when vendors have been accused or convicted of certain crimes such as workers' compensation fraud, medical fraud, or Medicare fraud. AB 1244 provides that if a vendor is convicted of fraud, then they are automatically suspended from treating in the workers' compensation system. And other health care systems seem to be headed in the same direction. It's no secret that Medicare and Medicaid patients are crucial to the bottom line for many physicians. So being excluded from participating in programs is a big deal and can sometimes mean the end of a medical practice. Under the Social Security Act, the Office of the Inspector General is authorized to exclude individuals or entities that cause the submission of false or fraudulent claims to federal health care programs. The exclusion law is applicable in nearly all conduct that forms the basis for a False Claims Act action involving the federal health care programs and a recent 20-year exclusion issued by the HHS Office of Inspector General should show that government means business. Labib Radici, a New Jersey-based OBGYN, was excluded for allegedly submitting thousands of fraudulent claims for pelvic floor therapy. A senior counsel with the Office of the Inspector General, who represented the agency, said the exclusion was one of the longest reached under the office's permissive exclusion authority and the longest issued after an agency-initiated legal action. Dr. Riachi reached a $5.25 million False Claims Act settlement in February over the false claims, but the Office of Inspector General thought the settlement did not go far enough. An initial notice of proposed exclusion called for a 
30-year exclusion for Dr. Riachi, but he ended up settling on a 20-year period rather than going before an administrative law judge. While he agreed to the exclusion, he denied any liability. Officials said that in cases such as this, collecting money from a wrongdoer is not sufficient and the Office of Inspector General will pursue exclusion to protect patients and programs. The DWC has posted an adjustment to the inpatient hospital section of the official medical fee schedule to confirm to changes in the 2017 Medicare payment system. This adjustment is required by the Labor Code, and the effective date of the changes will be January 1. A person is considered an inpatient when he or she is formally admitted as an inpatient with the expectation that he or she will remain at least overnight and occupy a bed, even if it later develops that such person can be discharged or is transferred to another facility and does not actually remain overnight. The Medical Care Fiscal Year 2017 update to the inpatient prospective payment system was published on August 22nd in the Federal Register. Using this publication, the DWC calculates changes to the California regulations consistent with the Labor Code requirements. The Labor Code provides that the annual inflation adjustment for inpatient hospital facility fees shall be determined solely by the estimated increase in the hospital market basket. Thus, in lieu of using the Medicare rates to determine the updated OMFS amounts, the estimated increase in the hospital market basket was used, and the estimated increase in the market basket was 2.7%. Further information and adjustments to the uh, inpatient hospital section of the official medical fee schedule can be found on the DWC website OMFS page. The DWC Acting Administrative Director has appointed James R. Libyan Esquire to serve as a member of the Workers' Compensation Ethics Advisory Committee effective immediately. Mr. Libyan is counsel with the firm of Wren Sloan Holdsman Sakai, specializing in workers' compensation. He has represented public and private employers before the WCAB. He has also served as a pro tem judge and as a mediator. He will fill the position which was previously held by the late Robert Ruby. The Ethics Advisory Committee, established in 1995, reviews all ethics complaints from the public against workers' compensation administrative law judges and then makes recommendations to the administrative director and the DWC court administrator. The committee meets quarterly and members serve without compensation. As civil servants, workers' compensation administrative law judges are not subject to review by the California Commission on Judicial Performance, the agency responsible for investigating misconduct complaints directed at judges serving on the Supreme, Superior, and Appellate Courts. A judicial ethics complaint form and instructions can be found on the forms page of the DWC website. Anyone may file a complaint with the commission. Complaints may be submitted anonymously, but all complaints must be presented in writing. A 
Committee case is typically opened after the DWC receives a letter from an injured worker, an attorney, or a lien claimant that alleges ethical misconduct by a judge. Each complaint that alleges misconduct by a judge is formally reviewed by the Ethics Advisory Committee. To ensure objectivity, the committee adopted a policy requiring that the names of the complainant, the names of the judge and witnesses, as well as the specific DWC office be redacted from the complaints reviewed at each meeting. The committee prepares an annual report of its findings for the year. The latest report was published last March. And in medical news, the workers' compensation community is bracing for the potential, and some say eventual, tidal wave of claims for medical marijuana as a form of treatment for pain related to industrial injuries. But soon it may be possible to provide the claimed benefits of medical marijuana without any marijuana at all. Research conducted at Indiana University has found evidence that the brain's cannabis receptors may be used to treat chronic pain without the side effects associated with opioid-based pain relievers or medical marijuana. The study was discussed during the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience, the world's largest source of emerging news about brain science and health. The researchers claim that the most exciting aspect of this research is the potential to produce the same therapeutic benefits as opioid-based pain relievers without side effects like addiction risk or increased tolerance over time. Chronic pain is estimated to affect nearly 50 million adults in the United States. The rise in opioid-based pain relievers to treat chronic pain has also contributed to an opioid addiction epidemic in the country. The scientists specifically tested the effects of the new compound, CB1-PAM, on neuropathic pain, a type of chronic pain caused by nerve damage. After treatment with the chemical, the mice behaved like normal mice that did not experience pain. The study also found evidence that the use of CB1-PAM amplified the therapeutic effect of endocannabinoids without the negative side effects of a marijuana eye, such as impaired motor function. Moreover, the team found that the use of this compound remained effective over time to prevent pain in mice, as opposed to marijuana, which stopped working without repeated dosing. They also found that the compound did not produce reward on its own, so it's unlikely that the compound would be abused as a recreational drug. The University of Colorado Boulder researchers have discovered a brain signature that identifies fibromyalgia with 93% accuracy. This is claimed to be a potential breakthrough for future clinical diagnoses and treatment of the highly prevalent condition. Traumatic injuries are alleged to be the causative element in many fibromyalgia workers' compensation claims. The CDC estimates that fibromyalgia affects more than 5 million adults annually in the United States, with significantly higher occurrence rates in women than in men. Historically, fibromyalgia has been difficult to diagnose and treat, due to a lack of well-categorized tissue pathology and symptoms that overlap with other common chronic illnesses. 
but now there may be a new tool to help claim administrators evaluate fibromyalgia cases. Researchers use functional MRI scans to study brain activity in a group of fibromyalgia patients and control patients. The testing allowed the researchers to identify a series of three submarkers or neurological patterns that correlated with the hypersensitivity to pain that characterizes fibromyalgia. The novelty of this study is that it provides potential neuroimaging-based tools that can be used with new patients. The new set of tools may be helpful to identify patients' subtypes, which may be important for adjusting treatment selection on an individualized basis. The findings were recently published in the journal Pain, which is published by the International Association for the Study of Pain. If replicated and expanded upon in future studies, the results could eventually provide a neurological roadmap to brain activity that would inform diagnosis and therapeutic interventions for fibromyalgia. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.